Hello all and welcome to Roll Out the Barrel, the podcast hosted by two UK fans of the Milwaukee Brewers. I'm Sean, you can find me on Twitter at Haders Hair, and with me as ever is the grandfather, or maybe just the father, of all <laughs> things UK Brewers based, Mark. How are you fella? Hello mate, you're making me sound old. I know I feel it right this minute, you know what I mean? <laughs> grandfather? Grandfather? Well, actually, I think I'm older than you, aren't I? Yeah, I think you are, yeah. Yeah, not, it's there's not a massive yeah, difference though, is there? But um, <laughs> yeah, so you keeping well, mate? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we're waiting for official news, aren't we? But yeah, yeah, yeah. lockdown will be happening. But this time yeah. we'll have no baseball to watch. That's true. Yeah. Well, hopefully, come next March, it might all be done and finished. Hopefully, we we we, we pray, but we shall see. But in the meantime, like we've always said, we'll always talk about baseball if you can't watch baseball, and obviously that's where we are at the moment. So. Yeah, we've got three guests on the show today, and it's really exciting because these guys are all members of the uh, the Brewers Twitter royal family. So we have, um, first of all, someone who's been on the show before. You guys uh, know him as uh, as Dr. Scott, Dr. Scott Borkenhagen, should I say, sorry. Now, this guy is being called a sabermetrics genius by far better people than me, but this guy is so good. He discusses sabermetrics that haven't even been invented yet. That's how good he is. So, <laughs> Dr. Scott, welcome to the show, my friend, and thanks so much for uh, for giving us some of your time. No problem. I, I figure as long as I'm discussing sabermetrics that no one else knows about, I'm always right. So, <laughs> good philosophy to life, that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. Absolutely, there's some logic there. Yeah. Uh, also on the pod today, we have um, someone else making his second appearance uh, with us. So we have Matt Carroll. You'll find Matt on Twitter at mkemat13. Matt writes for the uh, Reviewing the Brew uh, website and describes himself as a more optimistic uh, than average Wisconsin sports fan, which I really like. So uh, welcome to the pod again, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank for ha- thank you for having me back. Um, let me tell you, Miller Park looks beautiful in the bright Wisconsin sun today. I bet it does. Can you see Miller Park from your house then? Yeah. Almost. If I have to step out onto about a street away, and then I can kind of see it off in the distance. But I drive past it every day on my way to work, and oh, there's just no better feeling. I'd be a, scratch that. There'd be a better feeling if we were allowed inside. <laughs> yeah sure it's yeah it's kind of look but don't look but don't touch isn't it <laughs> yeah for now uh and also on the show we have a third a third guest somebody else who i personally engage with a lot on twitter and i know a lot of us do uh josie mars and you can find josie on twitter uh, at josephine mars 42 josie's uh, an editor for the the wisco heroics website and somebody who loves music science and sports but not necessarily in that order but one thing she is is clearly a massive brewers fan so Hi, Josie, and welcome to the pod. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. Hopefully I get to make enough of an impression to make a second appearance, maybe. I'm in some really good company. Thank you for having me. You are very, very welcome. Okay, so the 2020 season, I think we were probably all in the end just grateful to get that 60-game season in. It was strange and weird, and there was all kinds of rule changes, and some were great fun. I personally loved the season. It was painful. I think we can all agree uh, at times yeah. it was painful to watch um, offensively. But my question, maybe I'll put this out to, to Josie first, but the 2020 season, a successful failure in your eyes? Yeah, I've been trying to come up with that answer for myself, too. And honestly, like you alluded to, I feel like it's a success just because it happened. We got those 60 games in. We had baseball. Now, yeah. for the Brewers specifically... I'm not the first person to say this, but it's all—it's like borderline failure, borderline success. Yes, we made the playoffs. We checked that box. We were never get above 500, and it never felt good. And that obviously, you know, Dr. Scott, you're like feelings, but that's not a number. But I—I <laughs> um, I never felt like we were doing anything to make any strides past. Okay, we showed up, and probably about a week in is almost as quickly as I started feeling that way. So, like I said, we got baseball. I was happy. We got an, an extra couple games of baseball, even though it was not the most pleasant thing to watch when we were playing the Dodgers at the end there. But I don't know. I just I feel, have this overwhelming feeling of mediocrity um, around the whole season for the Brewers, honestly. Yeah, I, I think so. And you're absolutely right. You know, we saw baseball and that in itself was a success. But uh, Matt, what was your take on the season? You know, I think... 
if you look from the standpoint of the goal for every team every season is to win a World Series. In that sense, we got to the playoffs and gave ourselves a chance to achieve that goal. So it's hard not to, in that sense, consider it a success. Whether you think that we actually had a chance of getting past that wild card round is a completely different story. But the Brewers put themselves in the position to do it just by getting there. And we did reach the playoffs, and that was the third time, or third season in a row that they've done so. The first time in franchise history that they were able to accomplish that feat. And again, you know, whether you look at it as legitimate, whether you put an asterisk by it, whether you consider the fact that we did it without, like Josie said, getting above 500 at any point during the season, you can weigh that however you want. But in the end, they at least gave themselves the opportunity to do it. Uh, we all would have liked to have seen it be a little bit more encouraging, but it happened. And so we got there. Season's done now, and uh, we'll move on to next year. But I think in just the very minor sense, sure, I would consider it a success. Not as successful as I would have liked, but, you know, we got to see playoff baseball again. And for fans who followed the team for years and years and years that's not something that we've consistently gotten to see on a regular basis in the past dr scott what do the stats say well it's tough to contextualize this all because if you look at the major league averages and then we kind of dive into brewer averages and compare them what's been happening in the major leagues since about uh, 2000 i mean you could even argue it's been happening before that but you've been seeing guys sacrifice batting average for slugging percentage, on-base percentage for slugging percentage. Um, they're, they're hacking. You know, you, you can't even really call it a three-true outcome approach because they're not even looking to walk. These guys are going up to hit bombs. Um, and so we see a lot more strikeouts as a result, too, over the last 20 years. So, I, you know, everyone's talking about how pitching is changing and how these labs are kind of, you know, causing an evolution in the pitching game. And I believe what we're seeing is batters trying to keep up with this evolution. They're just trying to do their best as spin rates are going up, velocities are going up, sequencing is getting you know ironed out to a science. Uh, it's, it's getting harder and harder to get a hit in this game. And so I think what guys have done is they thrown caution to the wind and say, well, you know what, we're just going to try and maximize production and see what happens. That's what the Brewers did. The irony of this all now is that as we see these major league averages shift, that the overall OPS has actually gone down. So you would think that since slugging percentage typically is 1.6 times higher than on-base percentage, that if you focused on the slugging percentage, that you'd have a better overall OPS. But that hasn't happened, specifically with the Brewers. Uh, in 1999, 2000, 2001, they were hovering around, I don't know, 750 with their OPS. The last three years, that's been the case, but we saw this huge drop in 2020. Um, so 747 in 2018, 767 in 2019, and then 702 in 2020. So there was a huge drop off. So what I'm trying to say is the game's changing, and it's hard to you know, know what to make of 2020. Because uh, we've got an evolving game. We have an evolving team. The Brewers don't have, um, you know, a lot of roster stability over the last few years either. There's a lot of new faces and new people coming in and out. And so projecting forward um, is really hard. Was this season a success? I would say if you make the playoffs, it is. I kind of agree with Matt. If you give yourself a chance to win the World Series, it was a success. Um, can you call never reaching 500? like Josie was alluding to, uh, success, I doubt it, you know? And so, again, you have to kind of hashtag 2020. Any um, observation, or observation or comment on this season? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I mean, I think every every comment we make and every stat we talk about has that little caveat, doesn't it, that it was, uh, you know, the season was, uh, well, just under a third as long as it would have been usually. And um, But, you know, the sample size, I think, was big enough to get a flavour, wasn't it, as to where we were going this season, I think. Mark, what was your take on it? Uh, similar, really. I mean, there, there were successes and there were failures, to be honest. So um, success, obviously, we made the playoffs. Failure, we didn't get over 500 all season. I think the biggest thing for me was was that our pitching was way above what we expected, but our batting was way below what we expected. So, uh, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to call it a success, but it was a success because we made postseason. So. 
I think so. I had a little look at the numbers and I suppose I'm just I'm, I'm naturally an optimistic kind of guy. Maybe a lot of Brewers fans generally are. So we ended up with a 4.83 season. Yeah, we were 29.31 on the season. Uh, we made we made postseason, which was fantastic. But then I, I, when you talk about relative success, it, it's hard really not to to start looking at the finances um, of clubs. I mean, you know, the Dodgers had a great season. They won the World Series, but they they've got oodles and oodles of of, of money, uh, and we clearly haven't. We're a smaller franchise. So when you just look look at the payroll. The 28-man roster for the Brewers, it was a $28 million payroll, so, you know, an average of a million dollars a head. The Dodgers were $2.7 million per head on their 28-man roster, okay? So, I looked at the at all 30 teams. The one thing that I found was that there were 10 teams who had spent a lot more money than the Brewers this year who performed worse. So... And I know you can't always buy success, but it certainly helps, right? <laughs> but when you when you look at those stats, I mean, I mean, there, there were some big, big names there that that really struggled. I mean, okay, the, the Tigers and the Mariners, they're, they're not so big, but they had a bigger payroll than us. But there's some really big names there that that struggled, and we, we all saw it this year. But the Rangers, the Diamondbacks, the Angels, who had spent, invested a lot this season, um, ended up with a 4.33 season, which was way worse than us. The Rockies, the Nationals, the Phillies, the Mets, the Astros, uh, and of Mets course the, the Red Mets, Sox. Well, yeah, and, and of course the Red Sox, who I think had a real season to forget. So for me, we saw 62 games of baseball. It really was. An absolute roller coaster of a season. There were some ridiculous highs, like the game against Detroit, where we just couldn't stop scoring. And I don't know what happened. And there was some uh, some pretty some pretty low lows as well. But when you look at when you look at our, our performance this season relative to our finances and our spend, I think we'd have to say it was pretty successful. And you know what? I thought we saw a lot more this year than we would have seen had it been a normal season. We saw guys given the chance to pitch who probably wouldn't have. Some of them worked really well. But we saw a lot of the other guys, and I really enjoyed that. I thought it was great seeing the likes of Topa and Bickford and these guys take the mound. And, of course, we'll talk about Dan Vogel back in a bit as well. But um, there's just people that we wouldn't have seen in a regular season. We'll certainly look back on this season, won't we? And we'll remember it for many, many reasons. That's my take on it anyway. <laughs> Any time we get to mention Daniel Vogelbach, I, that's just a bonus for me. So, Well, you know, you mentioned Dan Vogelbach, and um, I think in his short time with us, he's become a little bit of a legend, hasn't he? Um, Choo-choo. Let, let's talk about maybe disappointments and and who pleasantly surprised us this season. And I'll, I'll let whoever wants to take this first, but let's let's start with the negatives and end with the positives. So, Yelich aside, and maybe Dr. Scott, I know you had some interesting uh, thoughts earlier in the season about, you know, his barreling was still good. He was hitting the ball well, but it just wasn't coming, sort of coming off for him. So maybe we can quickly touch on Christian Yelich. But he was obviously the major uh, issue for us this year in terms of disappointment. But he was hitting the ball well, right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at <clears throat> kind of the different phases of, you know, the, the sequence, the pitches he's seeing, um, when they get there, what he's doing with it, and then, you know, uh, where they're throwing it. We can kind of consider all these different things when we're looking at how he played last year. We can even take a look and talk about the strike zone. The strike zone was was relevant all year for Yelich. Um, it, it was moving around. He was getting kind of bad calls consistently all year. You don't want to sound like you're making excuses for him, but if you look at it, it's true. Um he, he was undeniably pitched kind of around. Now, if you look at the pitch selection, the pitches he's actually seeing, 2018 and 2020, very similar. Um, and so you can't really argue that they're doing different things with him. There was a little bit more um, curveballs that he's ever seen in 2020 than before. He had four curveballs, uh, 9% the year before, 11% the year before that. So you're seeing it's not like a wild jump. Um, it, these are just kind of small changes in the, the pitch selection that he's seeing. So you can't really argue that. If you look at what um, where they're throwing it, um, we already kind of touched on that. And they have been trying to pigeonhole him a little bit more, throwing it at his five hole. They were working him low and in a lot more this year. And I think that could also be you know consistent with the curveball number that we saw. You know That's usually where you want to locate your slider, your curveball, uh, if you're a righty on a left-hander. And so I think that they're starting to figure out that we can't pitch to this guy. He crushes it. The other part of this equation, though, is that, well, there's two parts. He got worse at hitting every pitch across the board um, 
except for actually no he got worse at all of them i was <laughs> looking for a redeeming number there but there isn't um and then he's swinging 10 percent less and so that's the thing that i can't really make sense of and i don't know if that's the andy haynes effect or if he's just more timid because of the injury uh, but you kind of get into a mental space at that point i mean he was walked 44 times this this season so so yeah they weren't necessarily you know sort of sort of sort of pitching pitches that he could hit they were they were um they weren't pitching in the zone too that often but he maintained a decent OPS, um, you know, and so those walks did end up meaning something in the end. Yeah, seven. I think he was 786 at the end of the season OPS, which was, it's not a disgrace, right? I think we just expect a thousand plus with Yelich, don't we? we just, that's, that's what we want now. Um, it's an expectation. But there was a few occasions where he was ready to go in next. And, and some teams intentionally walked the batter before to bring in Christian Yelich, which was crazy. A, a bit disrespectful, but hey-ho, that's the game. But things like that just showed me that everyone could see he was struggling. Yeah, you know, Sean, you just mentioned stuff like him having the batter in front of him walked. I can't, you can't imagine that stuff like that is helping him get into a better headspace. <laughs> it just seemed like he was so in his own head this year. And again, with the pitch placement, you know, going going in and down on him, that whole area, he seemed almost skittish with it. And again, I think that goes back to him just being in his head over the injury. And also the short season can't help because you have this feeling that you need to produce and you need to do it now because you don't have time to get into a rhythm. And, you know, I think that that was evidenced really well by those couple times that counts gave him a day off. And then he'd come back and we'd all be like, oh, Oh, Yelly looks a little bit more like himself. Is that all he needed? He just needed that day off, but then you know he'd taper back off down, and he just he he couldn't get into a groove this year, and he he just seemed so in his own head. And you know, it was a good point that was raised about how people would legit walk the batter in front of Yelich just to get to him. That's because he was not producing when the Brewers needed him to. That. You need your former MVP to get hits to come through for you when you're putting runners on base ahead of him. And that wasn't always happening due to the rest of the offense. We can get into that some other time. But looking at his numbers, it's one that I brought up a couple times on some other podcasts. If you look from 2019 to 2020 with him, with runners in scoring position, in 2019 he hit 327, had an OPS of 1155, just great numbers last year he hit all of 132 with runners in scoring position that is terrible that is something someone way farther down the batting order would be expected to hit he had a 628 ops so again okay but not yelich style not yelich coming in in the clutch style so it just he wasn't doing what he needed to do when they needed him to do it and oh by the way he was striking out almost 40 percent of the time with runners in scoring position as well. So it, that's what was most disappointing was he wasn't coming up in those big situations. And yeah, it's hard to figure out what it was. Was he stressing out because at any point in the year, there was only so much time left to get things figured out? I don't know. I don't know if it was that. I don't know if it was the injury, but he just joins one of many players on the offense who you know just didn't quite cut it last year. But of all the people on the team, you need your MVP to be the guy who comes through. Yeah, you, you look at his war over the last two years, his F war, 7.6, 2018, 7.8 in 2019. He was on pace for a 2.8 in 2020. Wow. I mean, if you extrapolate to 162 games. So striking out a third of the time overall, I mean, Matt hit it on the head. You need your top guys to produce if you're going to be a small market team that's going to make it. And, you know, if you give a guy a $200 million contract, he better produce. <laughs> Do you think that was part of what, what affected him, though, having that, that big kind of price tag on him and, and knowing that he's sure. what, becoming the franchise player? Yeah, I mean, it's just another one of those things that could have been mentally weighing on him all year, you know, on top of all the other things we've talked about. Now, boy, I have to live up to this, and I'm not. And how do I? And over-pushing and... Yeah, poor guy. It was just like one thing after another. It felt like. Yeah, I know that Mark, you were you were commentating a few times this year on the In Play Runs yeah. YouTube podcast with the MLB, the UK MLB community, and I listened in because that was a great show, and I could hear the exasperation in your voice. 
So. Yeah, well, I did. Yeah, I, th- I think I did three games, and two of which we lost, um, and one I think we we just about managed to scrape past the Pirates. I oh, know it was quite a convincing win against the Pirates, but yeah, it was it was hard to watch some of those some of those uh, batting lineups, and and particularly when you're trying to be positive about the Brewers on a on a live like YouTube broadcast, it was real like oh, what can I find out of this inning? What can I do? You know, so um, but yeah, I, I it's it's been a weird year, and I think. Um, he didn't have enough time to get out of that rut and uh, mm-hmm. the season went by far too quickly and, and he just wasn't able to, to work it out. So hopefully now, you know, he'll work it out over the winter and, and he'll come back spring training and, and be the Yelich we know. It sort of seems to have a bit of a contagious effect on the rest of the team as well. My question there is, do you think, so if you take people like Keston, who clearly struggled offensively as well this year, um, he ended up with what, a two on two average. Do you feel that they were affected by the fact that Christian Yelich was having a tough season? Or do you think that they were just in their own zone and struggling too? Well, it's interesting with Keston because you know, it's his second year in the majors and all of a sudden he must feel like he's got, again, this added pressure. And I didn't realize this actually until I was looking up stats coming into today. Keston led the league in strikeouts. I was like... Did wow. I just choose not to know that? <laughs> um, <laughs> mental block. <laughs> yeah, just, again, it's mental block. And, you know, the added pressure mm-hmm. because of where he is in the lineup relative to Yelly most days. You know, once upon a time, he said hitting is the easy part, and he did not act like it this year. Yeah. And him to go from a rookie who played 80 games to the savior, that's a tough task. Yeah. And he's... Let's not skirt around the fact he struggled at second base at times as well, didn't he? I mean, we know defensively he's certainly not the finished article. This is, you know, and I think you're right. Sometimes we forget that he's how young the guy is. He's second year in the majors. So, you know, what what can you expect? But sometimes his defense is pretty painful to watch. Yeah, and you have to wonder if did his some of his defensive struggles at times wear on his offense or did some of his offensive struggles at times wear on his defense? You know, that's the type of thing that can get in the player's head and start to affect other parts of your game. Um, He did still end up leading the team in home runs. So, you know, he had his moments, but this is a guy who has one of the best hit tools on the team. You know, he he raked in the minors. And when he got up last year, remember, he was just destroying major league pitching before he ended up back in the minors so that they could manipulate his service time. Um, and then brought back up and did pretty well after that too. So you know he clear it's I I can't I find it hard to believe that all of a sudden pitchers just figured him out after one off season. You know like I think he had the same issues that a lot of the other players on the team had offensively. And unfortunately, when you're already somewhat of a liability on defense, not having a good bat to back it up is not a great situation. Hira, he had that UCL injury that they kind of knocked him for when they were evaluating him coming out of college. And, you know, you watch him throw. And when he's rushed and he's got to make a hard throw to first, he usually ends up completely sidearming it. And it doesn't seem like it gets there very quickly. I wonder how much that has to do with, you know, the way he's thinking about things. If you know that no matter what kind of play you make, it's going to lead to you having trouble getting it to first base. I mean, it kind of complicates the whole process. Mm-hmm. I just wonder how much that weighs on him in the field. Even just having any slight hesitation when you're trying to pick, and then it's like, oh, I shouldn't have even stopped, and then it's not on target. And mm-hmm. You saw and that a couple times this year where he whipped it into the stands. When it went wrong, it went very, very wrong, didn't it? So some wall throws there. and uh, I mean, you mentioned there, Matt, about, about his batting. He, he did lead on home runs. He hit 13 for us this season. He also led on RBIs. He hit 32 RBIs, which was six more than his closest rival. It was Ryan Braun on 26, and Yelly was down at 22. So I think, again, comparatively a poor season, because we all get excited, don't we? As you say, he had a great, first, he had a great season last year, and we just expected... Because we're optimists and we just expected him to go again. And, we, you know, we're all human and we have good and bad days, don't we? So I just think, yeah, it was just disappointing. But when you look at his stats in isolation, he was one of the better offensive players in the team. Ended up with an average of 2-1-2 and an OPS of over, over 700. So you wouldn't look at those figures and say it was abso- it was an absolute nightmare. But, um, again, we're expecting to see his OPS sort of 900 plus, aren't we? And um, 
I mean, another, um, I suppose, disappointment. And you know what? We could fill three pods with our disappointment this season. And we don't intend on, we don't intend on doing that. We will go to some positives because there are some big positives this season as well. But let's talk a little bit about Avasal Garcia, who obviously joined us on the two-year, $20 million contract. Clearly struggled again. Didn't know where to play him. He was a lead-off hitter on some games, and he was further down the order. Struggled again. We expected big things. He was our big money signing, wasn't he, in the close season? Uh, yeah, didn't really fire. I don't know whether it's some daft. Like, I mean, when Lorenzo Cain decided not to play, we put Avi into centre field. He's a right fielder, really, yeah? We put him into centre field, and um, I don't know. Do you think this had an effect on, on his game? He had played centre field before, but it's um, it's not his best position. Again, because we were moving things around, it kind of makes you wonder whether at some at some level it just knocked him off his game. Um, and I know a lot of Brewers fans are going on Twitter and complaining about batting coaches and things, but I'm not sure I subscribe to that. I mean, and I'll let you guys let me know what you think, but there's not many coaches who can tell Christian Yelich how to hit a ball, uh, who can tell Keston here how to hit a ball. They naturally can hit a ball. Do you feel that the batting coaching was responsible for our offensive struggles this season. Who wants this one first? Who wants to take that one? Uh, I'm hesitant to just be like, this is Andy Haynes, let's clean house. Again, it's a wild season. There's so many factors. Another thing that Matt kind of alluded to a little bit with Keston, and this could be applicable to everybody, based on the structure of the scheduling, you're seeing your divisional opponents more than you're normally going to see them. That's all you're seeing. So, while it's not maybe that the pitchers have everybody figured out, but you're seeing people you see more often. You see the people who you're more likely to have, they're more likely to have more of an edge against you and potentially vice versa. But just the way that the schedule was structured, that has to play a factor into it. I don't know. But as far as Andy Haynes is concerned, if you look at the relationship that he has with Yelich, like that's, that's a really strong, positive relationship. And you have to hope that He's the kind of guy that if anyone could have gotten Yelly out of that slump, it would have been him just because of their history and their good relationship that they have. Yeah, it's it, and I'll preface this by saying I'm the type of guy who generally wants to give coaches and players more chances than they maybe deserve. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to Andy Haynes, it's it's hard for me to lump everything all on him because look at the way this roster was constructed and how Council had to play all these players. He had platoons all over the field. So how is it easy then for Haynes to get, say, Sogard out of a slump when he might not be playing for the next three days because they just happen to be facing a bunch of left-handed hitters, and that means it's going to be Jerko playing at third for a few days. Like, constantly rotating guys in and out and trying to get Logan Morrison going and Brock Holt going and Justin Smoke going and Jerko and Sogard and Urias and Arcia and Pina and um, Narvaez. Look at all the names that just got rattled off there that were all different players who needed to get playing time to actually get going. It's hard for anyone to get anyone going if you're not actually getting in the batter's box and getting those reps. So it's it's hard for me to say that you can lump all that on a hitting coach. And again, you're trying to get all of that accomplished prior to the end of a 60 game season. You're trying to get people going within the first 20 games, let's say, so that they can be on fire for the final 40, you know, or, or however you want to block those games together. It's, it was just when you construct a roster with a bunch of platoons around the field and, that means you're giving playing time to multiple players. It's hard for any one of those players to just get going. So I don't know whether it's the hitting coach's fault. I don't know whose fault it is, but um, it ended up in the end just being a little bit of a recipe for disaster. I think I think it's a great show. And as I say, I don't subscribe to the fact that you know the, the coaches. Uh... At a much more junior at a much more junior level, you can understand it because you know is the coach teaching the basics right? But in Major League Baseball, you're not teaching basics. You're teaching highly advanced players to tweak their technique a little bit. I mean, you could argue that uh, he did wonders for Orlando Arcia. So there's there's two sides of the coin, right? <laughs> but wasn't so, Arcia you know. probably the one that, that played the most? You know, <laughs> and, and yet he had the, the best numbers. So, 
yeah, I, I think it was quite obvious when Jerko suddenly became the first baseman when we got rid of Smoke. He he improved and he was getting more game time. So, you know, you've got to question why you would look at platoons in the first place. You probably want a your best starting nine, really, and you want some good backups for them for when they inevitably, in a 162-game season, pick up an injury. Well said. I, I think you guys all summarize this beautifully, and, and what it really comes down to is three main things. I mean, you got new places, uh, new faces and new places. You've got um, guys on a shortened season, their whole regimen, their whole routine is disrupted. And then, you know, you've got this third factor that we're talking about, that baseball is a mental game. Um, you can't avoid the fact that this is a very uh, nuanced game and your reaction times are getting shorter and shorter as guys are throwing harder and harder. Uh, and so, I mean, we saw league-wide, the average drop, the MLB batting average dropped from 246 to 223 from 2019 to 220. And the OPS went from 767 to 702. And so there's a league-wide um, dip in offense that we saw. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, kind of what we just talked about, the schedules are disrupted. They don't have the same routines. Their mental edge maybe gets a little bit shifted or stilted. Uh, and at the end of the day, this is a game where I don't think a guy like Andy Haynes can go in and wave a, a magic wand and be like, you can hit now. <laughs> Just do this. Um, because like you're saying, it, it's it's a very uh, high level that we're talking about here. These guys have done this a million times. And so all you can do, I think, is have, like Josie is saying, guys who can tap into the human aspect of players, try and get into that almost psychotherapy um, area where you're trying to figure out their routine, how they're doing things. And I think that's why um, I keep coming back to Yelly swinging 10% less. If there is an Andy Haynes effect, I think that's what it was this year. There's a lot more timid hitters at the plate looking for walks, um, being more patient. Uh, and I, I don't think there's that killer instinct that comes along with that mentality interesting point too because that was very evident with Sogard I felt like this year like of all players he was walking a ton and he got so much more patient at the plate and even Orlando who used to be you know Mr. I'm gonna swing at the first pitch I don't care where it is and he was more patient at the plate and I felt like again with Orlando that that paid off significantly for him I feel like this was you know, kind of getting into a positive here, but I feel like this was a major growth year for Orlando. Not only at play, I feel like just as a human too, because he had competition for the first time. You know, we mm. brought in Luis, and I feel like that served him very well. That he he had kind of had that okay. Now I have to step up, and that that worked for him. Whereas you know, we just talked, it didn't work for everybody. But Orlando having to step up seemed to work out really well for him. I think it's great. And you know what? It's a, it's a great segue into let's talk about some of the positives on the offense. I mean, we've got to talk about the pitching yet. So we'll, we'll <laughs> but um, you're right. I mean, uh, he had his, his best year offensive before as RCA. 14 walks. So that shows how his discipline was better this year. And you know, I think you're absolutely, your observation is absolutely spot on. I know he'd been working on his swing in the, over the winter. He looked really good in spring training, and I think he brought that into the season. And for me, he was um, he was one of the positives offensively for it. He ended up with a 7.34 OPS, you know, better than Yelly and, and, and Hira. Orlando is a guy that I think we, next year, um, we either have him penciled in at shortstop as our everyday guy, or he's gone. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't think there's much in between at this point. And... I don't know with the way that the the league is right now and with contracts being purged uh, from every team Orlando's in a very uh, high risk zone right now we'll just say it yeah. that way Yeah I, I had a a thought about um Arcia I mean he for me he was probably one of our best players of the year um off the pitching staff um I thought defensively he looked fairly good um I don't think he had very many errors that I can remember um and he was the only guy that seemed to be able to play the small ball everybody else seemed to be trying to hit the bomb um so for me I think he impressed enough to to do one of two things basically we either give him a, a bit more of a contract for next year and, and try and cement him in as a shortstop or we cash in on him now and uh, and we try and use that potential that he's got to, to try and 
possibly get a couple of uh, of people in first base or uh, or third base um I don't know. My problem is, is that I don't know too much about how contracts work and, and trading and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, he's definitely showing that he's improved and that he's done. Uh, yeah, he was the only one that stepped up massively from last year. Everybody else dropped off. So yeah, for me, it's it's kind of like, do we, do we give him another year or, or do we see if there's there's any trade possibility with him at the moment? What do you do if you're Stearns? Yeah. Uh, at the moment, with him being the only person that actually performed, I'd probably keep him. That's kind of the way I'm leaning, too, after this year. I, I was at the beginning of the year, if you would have asked me, I think I might have said it's time for him to go. But after this year, I, I don't know. His energy, the way he fits in that clubhouse, the way he so, kind of seems to figure out a new thing every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely seems to be the one that has the most fun in the uh, on the bench as well, isn't he? Uh-huh. <laughs> Whenever the, the camera kind of sort of pans <laughs> around to him, he's always the one that's laughing and joking and having fun on the bench. So, uh, yeah, he, he seems to be a, a good guy for the clubhouse. But also, he's not a bad shortstop. I mean, he's you look at his numbers, he's, he's not in the top echelons, but he's not a bad shortstop, right? So I suppose it depends what we want. I mean, there's, there's a few bigger names that have just gone free agent now, but... We, I don't think we can afford them. I think what we get with Arcia, he's a solid player. He's fit and athletic, which you need to be in that position. He's showing this year that he can bat. He can be more aggressive. And as Josie pointed out, he can be more disciplined as well. Personally, I'm not sure why we'd want to move him on. I think when it comes to Arcia, it's, I, I go kind of a couple different ways with him. When it The biggest thing with him is going to be money, honestly. Um, he is set to, in arbitration... Uh, make anywhere from roughly three to four million, um, yeah. which isn't a ton for a you know 26 year old shortstop who is originally your he was either number two or number three prospect in the system. Um, so mm-hmm. obviously he's always had a lot of potential. But you also have Urias. Um, he looked good at the beginning of the season before he severely slumped at the end, um, but good enough to the point where you know a lot of us were calling for him to be batting leadoff um, towards the middle of the season. Is there yeah. enough to build off with him to take over as the shortstop? And if that's the case, when you're a team that's going to go into next season with a really tight payroll situation, is now the time to potentially move RC in the form of a trade? I don't think that they straight up non-tender him. I think if they do, if they don't trade him, he will be on the team. That's those are the two options: trade or continue to be on the team. Um, but there's also a question of how high his trade value actually is. I mean, yes, we as fans were glad to see him uh, be more consistent as a player. He still had a baseball war of zero, so that makes him perfectly <laughs> average. Did yeah. Right, exactly. He just wasn't bad. He was okay, and is okay enough for another team to want to trade for him, maybe at his price, maybe at his potential, um, but I don't know if that ends up being the case. And like you were kind of saying, it is hard to get rid of who ended up being one of your most consistent hitters in 2020. Now, that's by 2020 standards. <laughs> is that going to hold up well in a normal season? I don't know. It was great to see him take that step forward. That's awesome. But does that also you know, mean that that now would be the time to potentially move on. I was glad to see that he became more consistent. I will definitely give him that because he was the type of player who used to go through really bad streaks, really good streaks, but then also really bad ones that it just took him a while to dig out of. So it was nice that his head was in a place where he could avoid that this season. A real pleasant surprise for me this season, and I wasn't really too impressed when we signed the guy, but it was Jed Jerko. He really stepped up for us this season. Um, some really good figures. He's again, you know, he ended up with um, 838 OPS, um, which was, I'm going to park Vogel back. I mean, he's at 987, but only at 58 at bats. Okay, so let, let's park him for a moment and we will talk about him in a second. But um, yeah, Jerko's 838 was, was the best by quite some way. I thought he was, he was awesome and gave us both first and third base options as well. So, it's unfortunate that at $4.5 million, the moment, as we stand today, the, the Brewers have decided not to take up the option uh, for next season, which I think we're all really disappointed about. But I thought he was great this year. Really enjoyed watching him bat. 
I thought he was the one guy that earned, uh, you know, the spot. I thought he was going to be the one guy that they did pull the trigger on because he he was effectively Moose this last year. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, he filled the yeah. Moose role very well. He might even outperform Moose because he's a better defender, you know. And so it, it's I don't want to get too crazy here, but Jerko was brought in to do to fill a role and he did it better than any other guy that came in. Yeah, out of, out of everybody that's going up for, for free agency this year, uh, this yeah, the end of this season, um, I thought he was the only one that was almost pretty much guaranteed to be kept, and everybody else was probably going to be let go. So, but they seem to have dropped everybody, don't they? So, <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> Not surprised horribly about Sogard and Gamble. Gamble, I think, is a little bit of a different story um, with his contract. But I was also very surprised that we didn't hang on to Jerko. I don't know what the game plan is here. If we're going to try to bring him back for less of what the plan is, but he's one of those guys that just kind of quietly did his job very well. He's not very flashy, but you know, even some of those throws that he makes from totally across the diamond when he's playing third, it's just frozen rope. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And it's so unspectacular. He makes, because he makes it look so easy. <laughs> and, and, you know, like you said, doc, he, he just did what we needed him to do and was very, consistent in a season that we just needed somebody to be consistent yeah i mean he was also our third highest home run hitter as well wasn't he behind uh here and yelich so um that's <laughs> the other surprise is you know if you're if you're dropping brawn because you can't really justify the 15 million dollars why not keep somebody that's only four and a half million dollars who hit more home runs than him you know it's <laughs> it did seem a bit of a surprise yesterday the news when i saw that but yeah but i think that goes to uh, show what the financial situation is going to be across baseball exactly. this offseason. Um, there have been plenty of other surprising um, cuts that have happened much more surprising than Jerko. And so if we think that our payroll situation is going to be tight going into 2021, clearly a lot of other teams are starting to think the same thing as well. So players who are having these options picked up and or declined, um, you have to have put it up a very good season in 2020 for them to justify bringing you back. And sometimes even the good season in Jerko's case wasn't enough. Um, yeah, I, I don't know either if they're going to try and bring him back at a cheaper contract or look somewhere else. Um, but it's not like Jerko's production couldn't be fi- found from a different player either. It's not like he was 2018-2019 Christian Yelich level or, you know, normal even just an average Lorenzo Cain season level that Jerko had, it was, it was good, but can you get that value somewhere else? I don't know what their plan is. I don't know that there necessarily is a plan yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I was surprised by it until I started seeing some of these other moves across the league. And then once it happened, it was kind of a, well, kind of just like everyone else. The purge is on for sure. And you know, the Brewers are going to have holes at first and third. We know that. And we need help at the corners. The thing, though, that I think is bigger than that is, are we even going to have a season in 2021? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so we're going to see these teams cutting costs, cutting players, you know, cutting payroll and getting down to the brass tacks. Um, Once they're there, I think they reset the market. And, you know, that's what they're trying to do right now. Uh, You even see these guys who were all stars last year, you know, under 25 years old, uh, getting thrown out onto the market. Guys that they would never ever think about passing on in the past are getting pushed out the door. So it's a sign of things to come, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think with the, the, the world finances at the moment, there's not so much money slashing around. And we're <clears> going to see this more and more, aren't we? The, the value of these players is going to go down, as you say. The uh, That's just economics. There's going to be more around. There's going to be clubs who are less willing to pay higher salaries. And uh, it's going to be quite an interesting thing to see in the in the winter, isn't it? But yeah, a little, little disappointing. I, I do hope we get him back. If we can get him back on a reduced contract, which works for us, uh, and doesn't put his nose out of joint too much, then that's good. So we'll, we'll wait and see what happens there. Okay, before we just move on to pitching, we, we, we can't leave the, the offense without talking about Mr. Vogelbach. Um, <laughs> 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 no, I mean, I love the guy because he just doesn't look like a sportsman, and I'm with that totally. So, I mean, I'm, you know. He, he doesn't have the physique. Um, he, he gives us hope, doesn't he? <laughs> he gives, yeah, he does. Yeah, he gives, he gives us pear-shaped body people a bit of a bit yeah. of hope. Um, but, and, and, 
<laughs> and you know when he signed and obviously we, we, we got rid of Justin Smoke and he came on board and it felt to me it just felt a little bit desperate um, I don't didn't, I, th- I didn't know I didn't understand when you looked at the numbers in isolation um, I couldn't understand it and I kind of went onto Twitter and had a bit of a moan and you guys probably got sick of it and stuff but um, totally proved me wrong because he came in and as, as I say in his, in his 58 at bats for us this season he was awesome 328 average and he just hit the ball at a time where we had no one else who seemed to be able to do that apart from Jerker. He was great. No doubt. He is Milwaukee. He might as well get Milwaukee tattooed on his back. I hope we keep that guy around for a while. He, I mean, I, I don't know if you have the context either of the Chris Farley reference over in the UK, but Chris Farley is as Milwaukee and Wisconsin as you can be. We cherish and love him. Like he's kind of the uh, premier or or best representative of us. You know, he's funny, he's goofy, he kind of self-deprecating, very much in that Euchre kind of way. And um, you bring a guy like Bogelbach in who kind of looks like him, and he's got this aw shucks mentality, and he's kind of having fun out there. You see it. That is Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Milwaukee. And I really hope that they can, you know, I'm a numbers guy, and so I'm always thinking what kind of production can he get? What kind of FWR are we looking at? How is he going to help us win? But with him, sometimes there's a guy that we I mean, we talk about the mental aspect of this. When you're building a roster, sometimes you, you just want a guy on the team because of what he can do um, from kind of a human standpoint, from a, a, a roster standpoint. And he seems to be that guy. If he can hit 250 and 20 home runs every year, um, I think that we got to figure out a way to keep him on the bench with Gamble. Yeah. With Gamble, yeah. And I, I remember he played a, a game at first base, didn't he? Not long after we signed him and everybody was a bit like, why have we got him at first base? And he had that juggle <laughs> to get an out at first base. But yeah, he, I, I think if we were if we were maintaining the designated hitter for 2021, then obviously he's a, yeah, you, you keep him straight away. Um, I understand there's a bit of a, an issue with keeping the designated hitter for the 2021 season if it goes as a full season. So um, I think um, they've got a decision to make on him. and They're probably holding off to find out about whether the DH is going to stay. But I think as we stand at the moment, without you know, if Jerko does leave, or we don't re-sign him. I think Vogelback's our only first base option at the yeah. moment, isn't he? Yeah, because Braun was the only other option, wasn't he? But the one thing about him, the guy can hit the ball is a big lad, and when he hits the ball, it stays hit. And um, you know, he's slugging was is he's you know he's he's slugging was about five sixty nine, which you'd expect because you know he was hitting hitting lots of homers and runs and things. But he also had the best on uh, on base percentage for us as well of all the active players at four eighteen. So you know, it pushed his OPS up to nearly a thousand, and it was um it was great fun. And I think it lifted a lot of Brewers fans, didn't it? And, and the team, I think, certainly mm-hmm. towards the end of the season when he came on. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who was. You know, he, he was pulling up trees last year for the first half of the season. He was doing a great job. Was he at Seattle? Yeah, Seattle, he played all star. Yeah. yeah, Mariners. Yeah, I mean, he was an all star, right? And then obviously the wheels fell off the second half of his season. I think your points really valid there, Mark. If we had a DH going into next year, we wouldn't be having a conversation. He'd be there, wouldn't he? I suppose my question is, would he, would we want him to be our first choice first base? Certainly now that Eric Thames is now a free agent again, hmm. and uh, we could probably get him for a, a, a you know a, a, sh- a smaller fee than the seven million that we released him on. No, personally, um, <laughs> I, I like him. I like him as a hitter. Um, I'm not so sure. I'm so confident with him being you know. 75% of our games at first base and he's certainly not the sort of person that you can go well we'll stick him out in the outfield and uh, and see what he can do because uh, yeah I don't think he's got the speed to cover that so um, yeah I think yeah for me he's definitely a DH and a backup first base I know you've mentioned their Thames um, would love to see him back because I love Thames but um, I think he's probably going to be too expensive Daniel Vogel back is isn't he uh, he's under club control for quite a while as well isn't he I don't think he's, yeah. he's free agent until next year and his arbitration isn't until something like 2025 so um, so he's probably the sort of player that the Brewers would look to keep because of that that seems to be the thing that they they, they tend to look at rather than the salary thing about Danny that Dr. Scott started on is the intangibles because we lost a lot of those energy guys in the dugout the past couple of years. Um, Aaron's gone, VR is gone. Um, 
So having someone like Danny and Arcia, those guys in the dugout, just bringing energy and positive attitude and the positivity train, if you will, um, that ends up having value that doesn't show up on paper. Absolutely. You can't measure everything, can you? It isn't intangible. Would you guys be comfortable with him at platoon next year, a platoon role? Um, going on the way platoons went this year, I would rather we didn't have any platoons next year. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, of course he can play first base. You know, he's he's a professional baseball player. You know, <laughs> he's going to be twenty times the player I will ever be. You know, even if he's playing in his worst position. So yeah, you know, I, I totally trust him at first base. I just would rather have. I, I think Jerko looked really, really quite good at first base when when he stepped in. I know he's predominantly a third baseman, but yeah, I think he looked pretty good. Um, yeah, he's he's just a hitter for me, and and I think yeah, come twenty twenty two, I think University H is is pretty much a guaranteed, isn't it? So I, I guess we we keep him for the year just so that from twenty twenty two we've got a decent DH. That, that on-base percentage, not only is Vogelbach sexy, but the on-base percentages. So if he can maintain that, uh, we got a guy. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I mean, for one game only, I'd like to see him play shortstop. <laughs> <laughs> or cats. Yeah, for one night only. <laughs> He's big enough, he might just be able to knock everything down. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, just don't let it get past you. <laughs> So there you go, Dan Vogel back at shortstop. You heard it here first on this pod. You know, we had such a great time talking with Josie and Scott and with Matt that, uh, well, we recorded enough material for two pods. So we're going to call that part one. We're going to move to part two next time when we'll be talking about the rotation, things defence, arbitration, uh, best moments of the season and lots, lots more besides. So thanks for listening, guys. Take care of yourselves and go Brewers.